At 28 years old, I was shot and paralyzed in the chest down. I had two options. I could stop, and let the things I cannot control control me, or I could move forward and put my energy into things that would improve my life and those around me. I chose to move forward and surround myself with risk takers, innovators, and leaders who've chosen the same path. Join us on the journey. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Forward with me, Derek Herrera, and my guest today, Elliot Ackerman. Elliot is a former Marine officer. He served as a Marine Raider before transitioning to the CIA, and then left and did something totally unrelated and became an award-winning author where he's authored multiple books, including one of my favorite new ones, which is uh, hot off the press called 2034 that you can find anywhere books are sold. We talk about his days in... Uh, the Marine Corps and the founding days of the Marine Special Operations Command or MARSOC Marine Raider community, what it was like to transition to the highly specialized units he was in within the CIA, or as he called it, the big leagues or the NFL, and then why he decided to leave that position and pursue something totally unrelated and try to be successful as an author, which he has done and achieved significant accolades doing. So truly had an amazing conversation with Elliot. I hope you enjoy this episode of Forward. If you do, and you're watching this on YouTube, please like, comment, subscribe. If you're watching it on Spotify or listening on Spotify, please share with anyone you think may be interested. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Give us a five-star rating if you so care to, as we're hoping to attract more and more people to this movement and the tribe. Uh, and more people who can benefit from the messages that we're sharing and learn from these experiences. So hope you enjoy this episode of Forward with me, Derek Herrera, and Elliot Ackerman, and hope you all have a great week. This is the first time we've actually met and had a chance to converse. Uh, and so when I was doing some research before this episode, I was really interested in your background and you know, and thought I'd start off just by asking you what, what drove your decision to, to join the military after you uh, graduated from college. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I did ROTC in college, so I sort of, my decision was like before going into college, and um, <clears throat> and just to give a little bit of context, that was, I guess, in 1998, so it was pre-9-11, um, but I say there were kind of like really three things that contributed to that decision, so that, I mean, the first was I grew up overseas, or spent a significant time of my childhood overseas, uh, nowhere too exotic when I was in, I was in England, but I think just like Viewing the U.S. from even like kind of a little bit removed gave me just an appreciation of the country and made me feel like I wanted to give back in some way. So I think I, I also wanted when I got out of college to have a job or whether I was good at my job or bad at my job really mattered. So I wanted a lot of responsibility. You know, I couldn't think of anywhere else aside from the military where, you know, or specifically the Marine Corps where they put you in charge of like 46 people when you're 22 years old. So that appealed to me. And I'd say like kind of the last thing was, you know, like I was that kid who never stopped playing with his G.I. Joes. So like I had this inherent fascination with the military. So like you combine those three variables, you know, it, it led me into the Marine Corps. And then obviously I made that decision that I wanted to serve before 9-11. And then 9-11 happened while I was in college. And then I, you know, graduated, I came into a peacetime military and graduated school and went on active duty into a wartime military. Yeah. Did you, did you have any other family members in the military or was it just 
you know, something you're exposed to through GI Joe? Uh, yeah, else? a little bit. My grandfather was in the Navy in World War II. He worked okay. in uh, research, like developing radar. Uh, my father was in the New Jersey National Guard during Vietnam as a typist clerk. Uh, so he kind of jokes about his military experience. He was a he made it to corporal, but got busted down to back down to private because he got caught sneaking off base one night to go see a movie. Um, so. So there were people in my family who served, but um, but I think I'm probably the one who you know took it a little bit further. Nice, that's awesome. I can relate to the sneaking off base thing. So I actually uh, almost got kicked out of the Naval Academy when I was a plebe. Oh, yeah. uh, I was terrible because I was going home to Delaware, and they had a 22 mile liberty limit, and mm-hmm. uh, Delaware was like 50 miles, right? And so on Saturday, I'd just like get out of there, go home come back before you know because you're only allowed out from like 10 a.m to 10 p.m on saturdays and so i did that uh but one time i was out with my wife uh who was my girlfriend and fiance at the time um since we were dating in high school and like some guy who i think one of my teachers who i i rubbed the wrong way in high school like saw me and found out that i get in trouble and so he like sent this nasty email to uh to the, the naval academy and then uh you know and then i got in trouble so i got busted down no, that's pretty messed up that you that email. It was bad. You know, I probably deserved it. You know, I was doing the wrong thing. Um, yeah. I learned a lot from it. So uh, I needed some humility at that time, too. So, like, uh, you know, I was a little wild, obviously. I had a disdain for authority, um, yeah. which didn't bode well at the Naval Academy. But uh, but I learned. So yeah, that's awesome. I can relate to that. And so when you went in the Marine Corps, so you self-select to go in the Marine Corps, but then you've also self-selected. You, you ended up in the infantry as well. What, what was the line of reasoning you had for that? I don't know. It's probably similar, you know, you're an infantry officer, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's probably similar to you, you know, like the Marine Corps, listen, the organizational soul of the Marine Corps has been and always will be the infantry. So, um, so I knew I wanted to be a Marine and to me being a Marine, you know, like really being a Marine meant that you were going to be an infantry officer. Um, so, uh, so it seemed very natural to me to want to have that experience, uh, sort of why I wanted the Marine Corps in the first place. And I think that the, you know, and again, it goes back to the desire to like, you know, want to feel like if you're good at your job or you're bad at your job, it matters, you know, so it's a really, you know, the leadership dynamic appealed to me. Um, being in the infantry and the Marine Corps, as you know, is like a very unique experience. I mean, you, you know, you get to serve in units that are like very storied units with very strong organizational identities. Um, I think what was sort of interesting for me was I really felt like I had to have the experience of being a rifle platoon commander, like in the most intense way, because um, because I, I, I showed up to my infantry unit in April of 2004. In June, we went to Iraq and, uh, you know, sort of dropped right into that. And then in November, we fought in the second Fallujah battle, which was you know, just it was really like being a Marine uh, platoon commander on steroids. So, um, you know, I had a, I had a, I remember I had my company executive officer at the time, you know, would laugh with us and he'd say like, you know, you guys don't even have your range control cards yet, but you're, you know, you're shooting rockets at like targets 50 meters away and launching mortars and doing all this stuff. You know, I had a company commander who, you know, sort of, he said this, it was very apocryphal that he said this, but he said, listen, he brought me and another buddy of mine, who's actually now, he's my other buddy, his name's Doug Barnes. He's the battalion commander for 2-8. Um, so he stayed in. 
and he pulled the two of us aside towards the end of that battle. And he said, you guys are both the luckiest and the unluckiest platoon commanders I've ever met. He said, you're the luckiest because right out of the gate, you've gotten to do this. And he said, you're the unluckiest because nothing you ever do in the Marine Corps is going to compare with this. And, you know, and, you, and I think you wound up being true in many ways. I had other great experiences in the Marine Corps, like serving, you know, in a second raider battalion. But um, there was something very unique uh, for me about, about my platoon commander time. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, it, you know, I had a phenomenal experience and, and it's special, right? It's, it's, it's hard to replicate. And I don't know that it's replicated in other services or even, you know, in other branches, you know, with, uh, other units within the Marine Corps, um, yeah. being in an infantry platoon, being in charge of an infantry platoon is, is yeah, special. Amazing. Yeah. It's a very special thing. Um, and just to set the stage too, for, for some of the viewers, you kind of glossed over this, but to highlight, like you're talking about the legendary aspect of of the operations in the unit that you were a part of. You were part of 1-8, 1st Battalion, 8th Marines. Uh, and when you went into Fallujah, um, this was one of the most uh, chaotic and intense combat operations I think that the U.S. military had seen probably since Vietnam, right? I mean, it was, it was incredibly intense uh, and combative. Yeah, and it's interesting when you look back at the trajectory of the Iraq War. Um, as time's gone on, I actually really I realized that it was an outlier experience. So, you know, most of the Iraq War was not that type of conventional kind of high intensity combat. It was, uh, you know, patrols, IEDs. You know, and that was actually very much my experience before the Fallujah battle. Like the Fallujah battle was sort of this like pause in time. And then we went in for more than a month, fought, fought this sort of set piece battle. And then it was over. And we went back to kind of the much grittier and grim work of counterinsurgency. Um, so it was really this, um, this outlier, this outlier experience. And, um, you know, it's often like been said, you know, like that the, um, when you talk of the services that, you know, the, you know, the, the army has its tanks, the Navy has its ships, the Air Force has its planes and the Marine Corps has its culture. And the, you know, the culture is like very powerful in a Marine, you know, infantry battalion, line company or rifle platoon. And I really had the chance to see how that culture like cohered. And, you know, and the guys who were in that platoon, like we're all still very close to this day. I mean, it's, you know, what, I guess more than 15 years ago, but we're all still in the yeah. touch. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And, um, and so when I was reading through your citation as well, you were injured and were awarded the Purple Heart. Did you did you get evacuated or uh, did you stay in country or how did how did that? Work no, out? I was um, I was returned to duty. I mean, listen, a lot of guys got a lot worse than what I got. I just ate a little bit of a, a grenade, and uh, you know, the corpsman patched me up, and you know, and I was all right. So I was returned to duty. But uh, yeah. yeah, you know, it was interesting. You know, my time in the the two sort of units I was with is my Marine Rifle Platoon and then my team and the Raiders. And those were both like very unique and like very special experiences and uh, similar in certain ways, but also like very, very different uh, as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's, that's interesting you mentioned that. And so you did that deployment. Did you do another infantry deployment before transitioning to the Raiders or, or what was your, your career like? Yeah, I did. Um, so we came back from that deployment in it was like early February 2005, and then we were going to do a Marine Expeditionary, you know, on a Mew. So we were going out with the Mew, and then 
we were all going to schools and I was at infantry mortar leaders course. So I became the 81's platoon commander. Nice. And then uh, Hurricane Katrina hit. And we were um, on ACM, so Air Contingency MAGTAF, so which is like, you know, you're on like 24 hours notice to go anywhere in the world. And it was Labor Day weekend, and we were going to have a, you know, a 96, so like a four-day pass. And I remember the hurricane had just hit, and there was lots of rumors that we were going to get called down to go to the hurricane. Our battalion commander has a battalion formation, says basically, you all might have heard the rumors that we're going to go down to Katrina. I just talked to the commanding general. The rumors are not true. Enjoy your 96. And we shotgunned out the entire battalion. And literally two hours later, we got called, ah, not so fast. You're going down to Katrina. So we spent more than a month down in New Orleans doing relief work. Then we came back from that. And then we deployed out with the MU. And then when Israel invaded Lebanon in 2006, we were out with the MU. And so we wound up evacuating the embassy in Beirut, which for our battalion was sort of interesting because 1-8 was famously in 1983 the infantry battalion that was at the barracks in Beirut when the barracks was bombed. Um, and so we went back and re-evacuated the embassy. So then I came back for that MU deployment, and then I went to 2nd Raider Battalion as a team leader. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it brought back a memory of mine, too. So I, I had a similar experience. I got my second deployment. I came, went to Iraq in 2008, came back, and I was going on the 24th MU. Uh, it was the same year I was on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's the same, same situation in 2010 with uh, Haiti. So they had an earthquake there and they're like, oh, we're not going to go. And then you're going to go and then, you know, uh, get messed with a little bit. Right. Like, like, OK, my company commander left and I was the exo of the company. So we got an email that said, hey, you know, get 100 guys, 150 guys ready to go on helicopters. You're going to fly into this place and help reestablish security in Port-au-Prince. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're like, you'll be there for 24 hours. Right. And we're like, OK, cool. So we packed pretty light, right? 24 hours. And then as we're like getting on a helicopter, they're like, oh, it might be like 48 to 72. We're like, okay, got it. Like, see how we can survive. And then literally when we land, they're like, we don't know when we're getting you. We don't know how to resupply you. Like we're, you know, figure it out, you know? So, and then that was like 10 days later before we got out, right? And so we ended up finding some army guys that hooked us up and scrounged, you know, different stuff through there. But it's funny. It's interesting That's the times. thing with the Marine Corps, you know, it's it, like it never it never changes. It's always it's always the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. same tactics. That's yeah. awesome. And so at that time, so what year was it when you went to Second Raider Battalion? So I showed up there. It would have been uh, like January two thousand seven. So like a few months, just a few months after they formed, and you know that was a very interesting time to be there. They. Um, you know, the Raiders kind of came together. In some ways, there's parallels to like sort of how the SEALs were formed in so much as, you know, the, the original SEALs were all the UDT guys. And so when I was there, you know, the original Raiders, you know, in this newest carnation were all the Force Recon guys. So it was basically just like Second Force Reconnaissance Company had become, and it wasn't called Second Raider Battalion, it was Second Marine Special Operations Battalion back then, Second MSOB, it's a horrible name. Um, They're still being very stingy about calling us Raiders back then. And um, and so all the guys there, we were sort of grandfathered in. And I had in college, I'd worked this crack deal one summer in college to go to. Uh, I'd, I'd worked deals to go to jump school, dive school, and the amphibious reconnaissance school in college. That's a whole other story. But I got I got sort of really lucky and had a great marine officer instructor, this captain who 
Um, he was a pilot, but he thought I was a sterile. He's like, yo, I'll cut, I'll cut you no cost orders to any school you want to go to. Uh, meaning like the unit wouldn't fund it, but he would just give me the paper orders that I needed. He's like, and if you can talk your way into the school, I'll work it out so you can go. You know, I'll, I don't, I don't care. You can go. So I actually wound up, um, it's a little bit of digression, but between my, um, towards my senior year, I wound up talking my way into the amphibious reconnaissance school. Um, basically there was a captain at Holy Cross college who'd been at second force and he was like, Oh yeah, you should go to, um, you should go to ARS and I know the XO down there. And the XO is this guy named Doug Zembeck. I don't know if you know Doug. He's a legend, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's a legend. So, I mean, at the time he wasn't a legend, he was Doug, Doug Zembeck. I mean, he was still a little bit of a legend, but really caring, you know, a colorful guy. And so Doug basically said, yeah, this, you know, midshipman wants to come down here. Like, you know, usually like we wash out, you know, a third of the class in the first 48 hours. So as long as we do that, there's going to be room for him if he can still stick it out. And so he, um, so he let me come down. That's when I first met Doug Zembeck and, you know, and then, uh, you know, he, I'm one of many people who was blessed to have him as a you know mentor before he was killed. And, um, but anyway, so I show up, so fast forward many years now and I kind of show up and I was going to go to second force recon, but then second force recon became second MSOB and now I'm at second MSOB. And I originally came on board cause I'd been through all the schools Back in the day, originally, the, the unit was organized. So now you have the Marine Special Operations teams. There were no teams back then. You had these big companies, and you had two platoons. You had a trailer platoon and a direct action special reconnaissance platoon. And the first two companies that went out deployed that way, and it kind of didn't work because what the Special Operations Command in Afghanistan wanted was they wanted these teams, you know, like ODAs, like the Special Forces teams. So they said, all right, we're going to get rid of this trailer platoon, and we're just going to take our big direct action special reconnaissance platoon, and we're just going to chop it into thirds. And um, and so within a, like three or four months of being there, they said, all right, you're not going to be the trailer platoon commander now. You're going to have one of these teams. And there were three. I was a first lieutenant still, and there was like I was about to become a captain. And it's like, you got a team, Ackerman, and there were two other guys who were senior to me who had teams. And I remember literally being in Alpha 66. I don't know if you know that building, but that was like the, you know, one of the kind of the buildings at Camp Lejeune and sitting there because we were, we were the first company to go out as MSOTs, which are still like the unit, of, you know, the point of the realm in Marine Special Operations. Yeah. And literally like no one had given us any guidance as to what the core mission was of an MSOT. So I remember being in Alpha 66 in like April of 2007 and me... And at the time, we didn't have a major in charge of our company. So it was the senior captain who was also like my surfing buddy. And he wrote one of my fitness reports. And the three of us, like, you know, I'm about to be a captain, two older captains, like, all right, well, what is the Marine Special Operations team? Kind of like, what do we, what are our, what's our core mission? And like writing it on a whiteboard. And when I later deployed, um, you know, I deployed lots of S, you know, Special Forces guys. And the SF guys, you know, they taught us, like, man, like, you know, it's crazy you guys are building this and it's also you know it's marine special operations it's new like you know it must be pretty exciting you know it's probably like being a green beret like back in the 1950s you'd be like yeah like it's yeah it's cool because like you feel like you're the first ones doing it but it's like also like lots of there are lots of growing pains you know i remember like the first time we went on relaxed grooming standards in afghanistan and the the, the, the siege of soda you know the special operations command which is run by the army guys like yeah you know all of our special forces team grow beards you marines grow beards 
And like people back in Camp Lejeune had like a niner freak out when they saw the photos of all of us. I mean, you know, it, it sounds silly now, but like I will tell you, story, I spent on that on that one deployment in Afghanistan, I spent more time talking about our beards than any other single operational issue. Doesn't surprise me. Yeah, one bit. We, we've learned some things, I think, but we still haven't learned a lot of things. So yeah. come a long way, uh, I think, tactically, right? Like, you know. We figured it out pretty fast, right? Um, I think, like, well, it would come a long way. But even now, right, operational grooming standards, we're still figuring it out. And uniforms, you know, yeah, yeah. we're still we're still getting there. New kids on the block, right? So right. we'll get it there. But uh, that's that's awesome. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, yeah, so you, when you guys deployed to Afghanistan, were you uh, before the company that had gotten sent back? I was with uh, Fox. Com- I was with, sorry. Fox Company was the company that got sent back, and actually, their Dasser platoon commander was in one eight with me. He was a great. I mean, great guy. He was a first lieutenant when I was a second lieutenant, and he was actually he was in Fallujah. He was shot by a sniper through his femur, went home, rehabbed his leg, and then went through amphibious reconnaissance school like nine months later and passed with you know basically having been shot through his femur nine months before. And then he was the first DASR platoon commander. So they, and they, you know, they got in, a, they had problems. I look back at it, I think, you know, they, the siege of Sodif didn't know what to do with them. And, you know, there were, it's, again, it's those growing pains because I know those Marines. Like, those were great Marines in that first company. Um, and then there was a company after them, Golf Company, went out. And then we were hotels. So we were the third. Um, and my, our team, um, our mission was we were the we were the first team paired with the Afghan commandos, um, which I think you know became like an enduring mission from our yeah. side. But like, so we were the first ones to do it, and we moved them from we met them the 207th commandos. We met them out in Kabul and we flew them out. We finished their training with them and we flew them out west to Shindan Airfield and set them up there. And it was our team, an army and army special forces team, were the two advisor teams with this commando battalion. And sort of tacit in our mission was not only, you know, train the commandos, you know, train the commandos, you know, you are in charge of capture kill operations for regional command west against, you know, senior level Taliban. But um, it was also, and oh, by the way, figure out how to get along really well with this Army ODA, because like so far, Marine Army relations and special operations in Afghanistan has not been going well. And like to the Marines credit and like into the SF guys credit, like our teams were very tight, um, really tight over that deployment. I, we're all like still in touch. Um, it was an awesome ODA we worked with and like the Marines and our team were great with them. And so, um, uh, and so, yeah, we had a very, you know, we had, a, we had a, I think a, like a really positive deployment and uh, got to do some really, you know, really cool out of the box stuff. Uh, and, and, you know, like as a Marine, it was fantastic. Like our nearest adjacent unit was like 70 kilometers away from us. Um, so we had a lot of a lot of autonomy, a lot of independence. And, um, you know, as you know, like the, you know, the Marines in Marsoc are some pretty, you know, it's a pretty dynamic group of guys. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And uh, I think we're, by the time I had gotten to training, I had to training a few years after the timeline you're talking about. And so a lot of our guys, a lot of our instructors were Fox Company company guys and second msob guys and everything as we're going through itc so good to hear some of the stories and but you know talk about it and telling stories and 
these guys were, were heavy hitters, right? Very professional, very capable, competent type of people you want to be on a team with. So that's impressive. And so I'm, I'm still just like taking a step back, like thinking to what you said before, which is you were a midshipman who'd been through amphibious reconnaissance school, jump school, dive school, get to your unit, get to the second, you know, Raider battalion early and you're a first lieutenant in Afghanistan with, you know, these guys out running around doing the first commando mission. So that's like, it's impressive. It's, uh, it's pretty amazing to, to hear that. Well, I, like I have perspective now and I'm like very grateful, you know, I mean, just like the timing worked and like the beat, yeah. you know, I'm grateful and I'm proud now that I can like say like, wow, I was there right at the beginning. But and I, but I still remember what it felt like. And at the time it felt like, oh my God, like, you know, no one knows what we're doing. Like this isn't, you know, it really felt like a pickup game. And, you know, the Marines were, like, you know, did an amazing job. I mean, I'll tell you one anecdote. I remember, you know, I don't know, probably about a month and a half into that deployment, we had to go split team at the beginning of the deployment. So half the team with my team sergeant stayed in Shindan to get things set up for the commandos because we knew we were bringing these 700 commandos out west. The other half of the team with me went to this place called uh, Rishkfor outside of Kabul, which was their training center, to, like, meet up with them, do, like, the last two or three weeks of their training and then fly them all out West. So we get everybody out West, we get set up. And one of the element leaders in my team, um, he's actually, he's still a reservist, but his name, everyone calls him squirrel, uh, S K W E R L the squirrel. Cause like squirrel could get anything for you. And squirrel was a DLI trained Arabic speaker. He taught himself how to speak Dari like within four months. And so we get back to Shindan and we're on the base and, um, Squirrel grabs me one day. And he's like, hey, man, like, listen, so I've got some good news and I got some bad news. And I'm like, OK, what's the good news? He's like, well, the good news is I've gone to like all of our Afghan contractors, the ones who are like contracting our food with, our fuel with, our construction with, our guard force. And like the last few teams who've been here and the teams, the teams who preceded us were uh, were Special Forces National Guard teams. He's like, you know, they've, they've been getting ripped off. You know, and I, so the good news is I figured this out. They've been getting charged way too much and I've renegotiated all of our contracts. So we're going to pay about like a 10th of what we used to pay. I'm like, well, what's the bad news? And Squirrel was also our pay agent. So he would draw our money out of Kabul and everything. And so he's like, well, he's like, the bad news is, you know, I got to fly back to Kabul now and I got to tell them that we've been getting ripped off, which means all the other teams are going to have to figure out how to renegotiate their contracts. And I don't know what they're going to do. It's going to be a huge mess. Like, okay. Well, like, what do you? what do you got for me? And he's like, well, there's one or two things we can do. I can either do that and fly back to Kabul or we can just keep drawing the same amount of money we've been drawing. I'll pay these guys the going rate and we can keep the rest and we can just use it for projects around the base. And like, we don't, we don't need to get approval from anybody. And so I'm like, all right. So as long as there's no hanky panky like that, let's do that. You know? So we had all these like great, pro- like we, there was like, we lived on an old Soviet base and they had an Olympic sized swimming pool on the base we like turned it into like a, an, uh, a reservoir to irrigate all the villagers fields. Like we rebuilt guard towers. We we're doing all this stuff. And so anyways, and I remember at one point I was like a, a, a supply flight had landed and it was me squirrel. And the other guy who managed a lot of our labor force was a guy named Aaron Torian. I don't know if you know T he was killed in 2014 yeah. and, uh, and T. And so we're sitting there and you know, you know, we're like wearing our shawar kameez that like we'd all started rocking around the fire. We've got our huge beards. And my the, the mail flight came in one night and my grandparents had sent me like a Harry and David, like, you know, like the sausage things with the crackers and the cheese. 
I'm like, oh, what am I going to do with this? And I go and Squirrel would have boxed wine shipped into him from he had a girlfriend who would send him boxed wine. So I go by Squirrel's room and I knock on the door. I'm like, hey, Squirrel, like my grandparents got me this wine and cheese and Squirrel's in there with his boxed wine. He's like, oh, we'll have like a wine and cheese party and tea's in the room. And we got our guns and we're all decked out and Squirrel's got his locker and in his locker is probably like half a million dollars worth of, you know, Afghanis that he's using to pay people out. And I just remember this moment. We're having our like little modest wine and cheese parties with all the cash and the guns. I remember looking at T and Squirrel and be like, you know what, guys, I'm going to go out on a limb right now. And I'm going to say we're probably like the three farthest out Marines in the entire Corps at this very moment. And um, I just only bring that up because like, you know, you, I can talk to you about like, like, you know, Fallujah and stuff like that. And those, you know, the, and those memories for me are very like, you know, sharp and clear, but also just like, doing stuff like that, like really entrepreneurial stuff in Marsoc, but just like, you know, Aaron Torian's a legend. He's a phenomenal, phenomenal Marine and Squirrel and those guys. I mean, it's just as valuable to me. Yeah. Yeah. And some of those memories, you know, it's like seemingly insignificant or, or not as, you know, uh, eventful at the time. Right. But then you look back on it and you're like, yeah. That was really awesome. You know, yeah, it's impressive. Yeah. It so. takes a little context to really appreciate. I mean, at that moment, I think I did appreciate. I was trying to like step <laughs> back, like God, dude, we should remember this because this is pretty. You know, yeah. We're, when we're all like clean shaven back in Camp Lejeune in five or six months, like we're not even going to remember that we were out here. But it's important to like remember this. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I never had the opportunity to meet Mass Arntorian, but heard about you know him afterwards and got to know him through the yeah. the community. And obviously, he was legendary and. I'm sorry to hear that he, you know, he was killed in action, but, um, yeah, yeah that was impressive. And, and you guys laid a foundation that was very successful. And so the, at least the, the way that I recall it, and I don't know if you have any insight on this, but hearing the people that, uh, hearing our instructors at ITC kind of talking about the turmoil that they'd been through with the mission they'd been on and then getting sent home. Uh, this was an experiment, right? This was a startup. Marsoc was a startup at that time where up until 2006, uh, we didn't have a component within the special operations command. And so we had recon and force recon, which were specialized units, but they were not part of the special operations command. And so it wasn't until 2006 when secretary of defense, Donald Rumsfeld signed that order to, to create MARSOC, uh, that that happened. But like you said, we didn't know what we were doing, right? Like, you know, overnight, you know, you just get thrust into this entire new, entirely new environment with a different culture and a joint atmosphere uh and figuring it out and then the incident that had happened you know i wasn't there and i don't know the the details but basically the guys had gotten into an engagement um some people had said that it wasn't uh pursuant to the roe or authorized some aspect and so you know they they got the book thrown at them right and sent home from country and all these sorts of things and uh and so that led a lot of people i think to question the value that the marine corps brought to socom and if it was a mistake and everything else and so um the units that went back immediately after from both, you know, first and second Raider battalion, uh, laid a foundation for success, right. Through 2007, 2008, 2009, uh, and so on. Um, and to the point where like all the stuff you're talking about, I, I can in, like intuitively understand of not knowing what's going on and trying to figure it out at that point. Um, but it was amazing because by the time I'd shown up for training in 2011, we had all of that knowledge, right? By the time I got to a team, it was very clear, you know, 
exactly how we needed to operate with this in, within this environment. And, you know, we were pulling best practices and learning very quickly, which I think was a testament to the culture that, you know, men like you and those that you served with had, had laid the foundation that we, we fell in on, right. Which was, uh, figure it out real fast, right. And become a great, great asset, make yourself an asset and not a liability and, and figure it out and become a you know quick learner. And so, um, so it's really interesting and it's interesting to hear you say that because, you know, I, from what I hear, you know, there, there was more than a few conversations of like, you know, send the Marines back to, to the Marine Corps, right? Like we don't, we don't want them anymore. And, and the Marine Corps didn't want us to go either. They didn't want to lose people. They thought they were losing their best talent. So it was this, you know, really yeah, interesting. I, mean, I think that's a really good well, point. The Marine Corps didn't, you know, you were sort of stuck between a, you know, not everyone, but just there were definitely people in SOCOM who didn't want this to happen. Well, why do we want these Marines? You know, don't, we don't want 2,600 Marines. We want 2,600 more seats for special forces, soldiers, or, or, or SEALs or what have you. And then you had a Marine Corps that was very skeptical about this. I mean, again, it's like, um, you know, a very poignant moment for me was when they finally called us Raiders. Like we were second MSOP, you know, like it was just such a horrible, like, who are you guys? Well, we're second MSOP. What's an MSOP? Like, it's, you know, it sounds like a medical condition. Like, I don't want an MSOP. Like, yeah. and, you know, well, we're Marines, but we're the special operation. You know, like, listen, every other group in U.S. SOCOM, you have the SEALs. You've got the, you know, the, Ra- the Rangers. You got- So when General Amos finally said, and I think it's interesting that it was General Amos who did it because he was an aviator. I think it kind of took an aviator to say like, no, this is what it should be. You know, infantry guys who kind of intuitively don't like this. Um, so I think it, it took General Amos to do it. I know he was a controversial commandant in other ways, but I think he really got this right. You know, say so you guys are gonna be the Raiders and you, you know, and that legacy should live on and it should live on in all of you. Uh, I, listen, I'd be lying, I felt enormous pride. I felt like, you know, squirrels and the Torians and all the folks I'd been there with had like over several years at that point in places like Afghanistan and Iraq and other places had like had earned that. Um, yeah. So I felt like we really were able to kind of earn that at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, I'd actually tell you that's like, that's one of the more proud moments of my life when I heard that, you know, I was actually out of yeah. when that happened, but I was, I was immensely proud. Yeah. I, w- I was there. I saw the I saw the campaigning and stuff going on. So that was right before I had medically retired in 2014. And um, and and actually, to your point, Amos signed it right, but I don't think he wanted to. I think it was McRaven actually who pushed it. So I, Adam McRaven, one of the last uh, flag officer visits we had before I got out was uh, briefing him at First Raider Battalion. And at the end, you know, that was one of his talking points. Right? Was like, hey this makes sense. We need to do this. We need to way to establish bona fides within SOCOM to know that you have a badge. You don't have a badge, right? Like I can't tell who's a, who's a Raider, who's not right. And you don't have a name. You don't have a brand. You don't have any of this stuff. Right. And so I, I, he was one of the driving forces for sure behind that. And it was really interesting to see, um, you know, how that kind of came together, but it was really cool too. Cause I think the other driving force, which we've, we've seen is, uh, the Raider association, um, the Marine Raider association, which had all the surviving members of, you know, the world yeah. war two Marine Raiders who were looking to pass on that legacy, uh, and all of that. And, you know, unfortunately those guys are getting very old. Um, there's not many of them left, but, 
that was one thing that they were very staunchly uh, in favor of was trying to get their legacy cemented, um, which was interesting. And, and going back to what you were saying about the Marine Corps, people not wanting to do it. I remember that was one of my first events once I had transferred to MARSOC was uh, we had the commanding general coming out and just crushing guys, right? Like he just pulled us all aside in the room and just crushed us. And he said, you're not special. Uh, you know, you got one title and it's on your uniform right here. That's all. That's it. You're a Marine. He's like, you're not Raiders. You're not special. You're not special operators. You're not, you're a Marine. Right. And I'm like, man, like, I didn't know generals hated their own people. So like, this is like, yeah. well, the two, are not, the two are not mutually exclusive. You know, like my experience working very closely with, you know, with special forces was like all of our guys knew you know, that we were different than they were. And we had a, and we had a, and we had a different culture, you know, like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't glaringly obvious, but like, you could tell the difference, like a staff. And I'm not saying this to poo poo the SF guys. Cause like they're, you know, they're great, but like a staff sergeant in an MSOT is very different than a staff sergeant in an ODA. You know, like there's a depth of experience that that Marine staff sergeant is going to have that like their counterpart in ODA doesn't have. It's just, it's just cause they're different, you know, staff, they're younger there. Like there's, there's just sort of different, cultures that exist and again like you know so all of our guys kind of came you know not all of our you know like they kind of came you know there there was there were no there's no 18 x-ray program in the raiders so like every guy there has been in some conventional unit getting lifed out and like shat on for however many years before he shows up in an MSOT, and you don't always have that in sf and it just you know, listen, I worked with some SF guys who were 18 x-rays who were like totally amazing, like, you know, kids who are savants and really savvy, but like they didn't have that like deep knowledge of like, you know, when they met up with the conventional guys being like, Hey, I used to be just like you and I get it. So the cultures are different, but you know, like I just bring that up. Cause like, you don't need to remind these guys that they're Marines. They know they're Marines and they're proud of it, but they can also be proud of this other thing too. It's like, yeah. you know, get over your insecurities, you know, like, trust me, these guys are going to thrive. They're going to make everybody proud. For sure. Yeah. And I, th I feel like that might be part of it too, which is, you know, for as machismo and alpha male or alpha dominated culture we are, right? Like there's still, still some lingering insecurities, uh, within everybody, right. You know, to prove themselves and everything else. So it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, I was talking with a very good friend of mine the other day. He and I actually, we went to ARS together and he, um, old second force recon hand he was a platoon commander during the invasion of iraq at second force and was one of the guys who was very instrumental in conceptualizing marsoc um so he was like back in 06 when they were really first building it he was in the head shed doing that hmm. and then he left the marine corps and went to cia and has been over there for many many years doing paramilitary stuff and so we keep up we go like we run together in the mornings and you know uh he's one of my best friends we were sort of, and he's a guy who's truly been like all over the place in special operations. And we were just sort of talking, and I guess as you know, you get older, you see things a little bit more clearly. And he was sort of laughing. We were kind of laughing. He was laughing at how old he was now and how he sort of felt like he was like, you know, wow, I'm like, he's leading one of these units now. And he's like, I can't believe I'm the old guy. We were sort of talking about like that kind of machismo and insecurity and the, Venn diagram that exists with special operators as they go through these units. Like now that, I'm, now that I'm older, I'll say this, like there is sort of this latent insecurity in all guys who go to special operations in, just in so much as you're always trying to prove the next thing. 
Like you're always trying to prove I can get into the next unit. I can get into the next unit. You know, I, I don't know. Can I hack it? Well, I'm going to go see if I can hack it. So I'm taking the next selection. And you're sort of ascending this ladder. And like if you didn't have those questions about whether you could make it, you know, you just sort of sit comfortably wherever you were. So I don't, you know, it's not a, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think like we don't talk about that. People don't talk about that very much in these units. How like there is this sort of competitive insecurity. I don't know. Am I going to be able to make it? Oh, I better go see. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I think it's one of the unique things. It's a, it's a, it's a strength and a weakness, right? Depending upon yeah. how you see it, right? Where it's like that same insecurity drives you to push harder and to never stop and never settle. Right. And so, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. That's awesome. It's a, how many deployments did you do with Marsoc before you transitioned to your next role or your next job or, and did you leave the Marine Corps after that or did you? I did. So I did one, I did one, um, I just did the one deployment with Marsoc uh, to Afghanistan and I came back and I went over to CIA and I was a paramilitary officer there for a couple of years. Um, and then, you know, then I was at about kind of the eight year mark of doing this. And, um, you know, I had a great time when I was at the agency. Um, and it was really, sort of the analogy I kind of used for how I was thinking about my life at the time was like, when I was in the infantry, right, it was like, you know, playing high school football. You know, it's like love of the game. You're out there every Friday night, you know, you're, you're, you're a scrappy unit and, you know, and, and you're playing all the local teams. I feel like I went to Marsoc and Raiders and it was like I was playing college ball, you know, like, Maybe I got nicer pads. Maybe like I got Nike sponsoring us now. And, you know, and every now and again, like one of my games is on TV. Then I went to the agency and I was like, now I'm playing in the NFL. You know, I've got like, I get flown into the theater on like a private plane. I got the, the slickest gear. And like, we were going up against like the very toughest teams. But at the end of the day, you're playing football. It is the same game that you're playing. And it's great. But I kind of got to a point after eight years where I was just asking myself, you know, is football the only thing I want to do for my life, for the rest of my life? And I love playing the game, but I just like, you know, there are other things I want to do aside from play football. And this is probably the time where I need to make a move if I'm going to have the opportunity to do those things. Um, and so I, you know, and so I made the decision to step away. Wow. That's awesome. And, and so then, after that, you transitioned to become, you know, become an author or what, what was the next thing you, you'd gotten into? After so I had an opportunity to go work like on a political startup for a year. So I sort of pulled okay. out. I went and did that. Um, kind of had a whirlwind experience like working in politics for a year. And then while I was working in politics, I knew this was kind of going to be a finite job. And I started applying to like a bunch of fellowships. And I was quietly writing on the side. I wasn't telling anybody. I wasn't telling anyone I was doing it because frankly – you know, when I, you don't have anything to show for it saying I want to be a writer, it's like kind of like saying like, you know, like, oh, I want to dance, you know, like it seems silly. Like I had nothing to show for this. So I'm just quietly working uh, on a book on the side. And um, I applied for a bunch of fellowships. I got this White House fellowship uh, and I took that. And, and my family, they kind of joke, they'll call it my White House writing fellowship because I was like very much working on, you know, my first book. And then, you know, long story short, over the course of that year, I was able to to get to get my first uh, book deal, and that was a securitist route. Actually, the first book that I wrote got me a book agent, and then that book agent took that book out to like twenty six publishers, and all twenty six publishers rejected it. And then I, I was working on a second book, 
And my second book wound up being my first book. And we took out that second book and we managed to sell it. And that was a whole year-long process of, you know, success, then failure, then success. Yeah. So, um, you know, writing and, you know, making your way in the arts is, a, you know, is a, is a tough business. Sounds like it. Yeah. yeah. And something that's like very uncommon, I think, for former Marines to do, right? Like, I don't know any other Marines who'd gotten out and just become authors, except for maybe one who's doing terminal lance, right? Or yeah. I, don't know, I don't know too many other ones, right? That's like, that's, that's impressive. And uh, how, like, how did that feel? Like, what was, what, what was the, the feeling you had after you got rejected by 26 publishers? You've been working on this book for years, right? At that point, yeah. pouring, you know, your soul into it and effort. And then like, you know, it was rough. It was rough. Um, you know, and you're, I felt very fortunate because I, I knew there was this other thing that I wanted to do. So, right. I feel lucky, like, okay, you know, my whole life from the age I was 17 until that moment now I'm 31 has been the Marine Corps. But now I realize there's something I want to do. That's not this. And so I felt lucky that I knew what that thing was, but then I failed. I had this big fail. I'm like, what if I can't do that thing? And if I can't do that thing, then what am I going to do? So it was scary in that way. I didn't know if I was going to be able to, um, to make this work. So, um, but you know, the, one of the great things about writing is that you are the master of your own fate. The only person who can stop you from writing and doing your work is you. And, um, I think I knew that and I just, you know, and I was able to kind of keep at it. And to this day, I sort of, you know, whenever I start a book project, I'll kind of in the back of my mind, I'll be, you know, sitting there, right? I'm going to get going and I'll say like, all right, well, listen, let's say this book project never comes together. Nobody likes it. Like what's the worst thing that can happen? I'll write a book and I'll send it out to all these publishers and every single one of them will reject it. Well, I'm like, screw it. I've already been through that. So you can't do anything to me. I like, I did that and I survived once. It's like, so in a certain way, like it's actually, it, it was painful at the time in retrospect. I'm actually glad I had that experience because there's a certain degree I feel like it kind of makes me a little bit bulletproof. Um, because I'm not in a position where like, I've never had that experience. And so I'm scared of it. And I don't know what would happen if that occurred to me. So it's like the worst thing that could possibly happen sort of happened and I'm okay. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. And that's an interesting way to frame it. And obviously in hindsight, it's not, you, you never know, can project what would happen. Right. But I've, I've seen probably people in both situations, right. Where, you know, if you're, if you haven't experienced the failure or the rejection or anything else up front, right. And you're, you know, lucky to have success initially, that can be devastating, right. To hear or to, to oh, yeah. have that fear of the unknown and to, to do that. And so in that instance, right, it takes, bravery and you know and and drive to continue pushing forward but i think similarly right like after you've been knocked down you know having this failure and rejection as well uh yeah. takes a similar level of drive and motivation to keep moving forward as well so i don't know i don't know which one's better or worse but uh but it does sound like you know you you frame that in a way mentally to make that an asset right and say yeah okay i took a step back let's see like i send this book out to 26 people you know they say no okay, what happens? I go back and do it again. Like what, you know, that's it. Right. Like there's no like public shame. There's no, you know, maybe a delay in financial gain. Right. But like, but otherwise it's, it's, it's not that big of a deal and you survived it. Right. And you've gone through the other side. And so now, you know, right. You have that as a strength and asset. Well, and I'll tell you this too. Like, I really believe that like, you know, like the poet Walt Whitman says, you know, like we all contain multitudes. So like before I went into the Marine Corps, I was like a, in high school, 
I was like a dope smoking skater dude, like not what you would think would be a Marine. And, um, and it's funny, like the people since I've kind of like transitioned and I, you know, I have like a you know, career as a writer and in the arts and people sometimes say like, man, that's so weird that like you were a Marine and now you're a writer. Like I've never heard of that before. And actually the people who have known me the longest will say, you know, we always thought it was weird you wound up in the Marines. We always thought you were kind of going to be more of an artist. So when I was in the core, I used to have this reoccurring dream. And I would be lying there. I probably, I would honestly, I probably have it like once every six weeks to two months. And in the dream, uh, when I was in the Marines, I would be like out surfing or skateboarding again. And my hair would be long. And I would have like smoked a little bit of a joint or something. And I'd be like freaking out. Like in my dream, I'd be like, oh my God, like I've lost the edge. And I'm going to like, you know, get thrown out of the Marine Corps. And I'd like, I'd like wake up in a panic. And I'd be like, <gasps> I'd, like touch my hair. And I'd like still have my high rag or my, you know, my haircut. And I'd be like, oh, okay, I'm still, I'm still a Marine. I still like, I'm still holding on. I still got the edge. And I wake up and I would have that dream all the time. I got out of the Marine Corps and I kind of transitioned into what I'm doing now. And I have literally never had that dream since. Huh. Now, the dream that I have that has replaced that dream is I will have a dream probably every six weeks to two months. I'm back in like the basic school in like training area 60 doing the land nav course. And it's like three weeks before we get our MOSs. And I know if I don't find my box, I'm going to get like, you know, ground supply or some like horrible MOS. I'm running through the woods and I'm like, man, am I still going to be able to like, you know, get 10 out of 10 on the land nav course? And so if I'm psychoanalyzing myself, like, you know, what this kind of these reoccurring dreams show to me is that at a certain point in my life when I was in the Marines, like there were parts of who I was and my personality, like, you know, they were just suppressed, not like in a bad way. It's just like, I'm not engaging with this side of who I am and the work that I'm doing every day. And that's okay. And then I get out of the Marine Corps and I am engaging with other sides of my personality, but like, you know, I'm no longer engaging with the things I did in the Marine Corps. You know, like most of my days now are, you know, like they're relatively solitary. I sort of, I do my work. I, you know, and I enjoy that, but I'm not like with squirrel and tea and we're not like figuring out how to plan the next raid. And I do like, you know, I miss that aspect of it. So I think, but I think that's okay. I think that's natural. Like that's just life. You know, you're going to, you know, my mother likes to say the secret of life is you can do everything you want. You just can't do it all at the same time. It's wise. Yeah. yeah. That's profound. Yeah. yeah. And it's been interesting because, you know, like a lot of people have those stereotypes of, you know, what Marines are or they're like or anything like that. And, and, uh, the reality, at least in my, what I've seen is right. It's, it's probably the most diverse group of individuals, ethnically, psychologically, life experience-wise. You know, it's it's all over the place, right? It's just yeah. impressive. And, and the only real tragedy is like if if someone takes that messaging and they believe it so much that they don't try to do some other thing that they want to do. You know, if they're like, oh, I'm, I can't do that because this is who I am. I'm not that other person, so I'm not going to try. And uh, maybe that, that's kind of why I tell that story, you know folks listening who like you know have some other facet life they want to go in like you know you should do it you know you got to do it yeah 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 i think that's one of the most powerful you know lessons i think we've talked about today right is like uh all of the things that come together to um make you more anxious or more scared or more uh nervous about taking a leap right into something new and something unknown uh, and so when you feel this passion or this desire to go do something, um, 
if it's not comfortable or normal or, or part of your day-to-day -day routine, right, then like you're going to feel apprehensive and anxious. You're going to start to see all the reasons of what if, you know, what if I fail? What if this? What about, you know, all of these things that then become barriers. But um, the tragedy, like you said, is if, if you just never try, right? And yeah. that's like the worst thing I think you could have, right? The worst case scenario is 20, 30 years from now, you look back and you're like, I wish I would have tried that, right? Or yeah. I wish I would have taken that risk, right? Um, almost to, you know, I, I, I don't know anybody who's said the opposite, right? Like, you know, who's looking back on things and they're like, oh man, I just, I should have never taken that risk, right? You know, I should have never, never, you know, gone for that thing I was passionate about, right? It's always, it's always been the opposite in, in, in my experience. And that's, it's been interesting. So on, on that too, I was curious, what other types of like uh, psychoanalysis or self-talk or like, um, like what do you what, what did you consider when you were going through these transition periods and in addition to just understanding okay like there's no physical or threats or you know associated with this failure but were there other things like uh, you know support from family or any any other things that you had or that you considered before taking those risks and and making bold career moves well, I think the biggest one with writing was I was doing other work as I was writing. So I was sort of hedging my bets. Like I was kind of doing it on the side um, okay. until it started to work. Um, gotcha. So, you know, so that that certainly helped. You know, I think I think in some ways, like the biggest challenge is how you see yourself. You know, like my, my same buddy who, you know, I went through ARS with who I was talking about, who, you know, who been through every like special operations course he he likes to say you know hey do you know he'll ask him like hey do you know what the biggest attrition event is at any selection I'm like what he says the biggest attrition event for any selection is showing up like that's where you lose the most people because people won't show up because to show up you immediately make yourself vulnerable to having washed out uh and, and i think that is true in so much of life like if you if you just show up um you know, more often than not, you're going to pull it off. If you just keep showing up every day and in the work I do as a writer, like I show up every day, like my work every day, like I do my work. And if I keep showing up of good days and all the bad days, but the only way I lose is if I stop showing up. Um, and that's sort of a lesson I really tried to take to heart. For sure. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, the, one thing that definitely, you know, you learn in the military, which, which I think is a lesson that a lot of people can benefit from too, is, is, uh, we're instilled with a bias for action. Right. And so from day one, it's like, if you don't know the right answer or you're not a hundred percent certain, do something, right? Like do yeah. anything, like show up, get to work, make yourself at like, do anything, right. Take action. Um, and that's been really interesting to see, especially as I've you know left the military to, to, to ensure and, and even to check myself on, right? Because a lot of times now, you know, I find myself looking back and it's like overanalyzing things, you know, waiting. So even this podcast, right? Like I'd, I'd been wanting to start this podcast for, for a while and just been finding excuses, putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. And then like, you know, out of the blue is like, why am I putting it? What am I doing? Why am I waiting to talk about this? Like I'm having a lot of fun doing this. Like this is a great outlet use of my time right like you know get to talk with amazing people like what what do i have to lose right and uh and now we're here so it's uh it's interesting yeah, yeah and so i'm curious too so i want to talk about 2034 um so you've written a, a few books right so you're at five now right five published novels 
Um, six, five novels six. and a memoir. Oh, got it. Okay, gotcha. So six, and 2034 is the most recent one, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so 2034 is awesome um, for anybody listening. Uh, highly recommend it. Um, it's really interesting story if you're, you know, if you're into any sort of uh, anything with uh, national security, military policy. But at the same time, the, one of the, the most interesting things I thought was when, you, you know, the, the lens that you told it through, uh, through first person, you know, experiences and, and just story, right? And so um, it's not a history book, right? It's a, it's a novel. And, uh, you know, it was awesome. I think you know, I couldn't put it down. I read it in like a day and uh, started telling all my friends about it. Like it was phenomenal. So, uh, and basically just to, to give a little bit about the book, it's uh, projecting into the future what could be um, international conflict, what it could look like. Uh, but for me, it was also kind of rooted in a, a very, you know, realistic, grounded, you know, view of the world, um, you know, for us as Americans potentially in conflict with China and other uh, countries like Iran and how the geopolitics and things shape up to, to, to see what could happen. And so that was really, really interesting. Um, I loved it and uh, it was awesome. So for, uh, for that book in particular, what was, what was your creative process? Like, like how do you, was it the same as all your other books or how did, how did you, put that together and like what was inspiration One of the things that made that book different was I, I co-wrote it with um, Jim Stavridis who's a retired admiral so uh, the book you know originally the concept of the book which is you know a work of speculative fiction that would imagine what it looked like if the US and China went to war in the novel's titular year 2034 and that was sort of his idea and he went to his editor at Penguin Press who happens to be my editor we just through coincidence share an editor and kind of gave him the idea and our editor said like i like this idea you know um there were books that were made like this in the cold war like a book called the third world war by sir general james hackett or even films like dr strange love that kind of imagine a third world war the jim went to our shared editor with the idea and our editor was like you know this is great like you know shouldn't you work with a novelist and aren't you and elliot friends and he and i knew one another he's a graduate of the fletcher school at tufts and i'm also a graduate of the fletcher school he went on to be the dean when he was the dean, he invited me to be the writer in residence for a semester. And so so we've known each other for the better part of 10 years. And so we basically just sat down and said, okay, like, let's, you know, we've never worked together before. You know, let's, let's like, try to write the first chapter, see how it goes. And so we sort of plotted out the first chapter of the book, you know, kind of a really good kind of writing rhythm, the two of us. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a pleasure. We just sort of wrote the book chapter by chapter, um, creating these characters and, you know, moving the plot forward. So, um yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was, you know, I like to say for a, a book on a very grim subject, we had a lot of fun writing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I can imagine. And was it, did you find it more, was it easier or harder to co-write a book or co-author the book? It's just different. It's more like, uh, you're, you're coming up for air more. So, you know, when you're writing a book on your own, you kind of like, you go deep underwater and you're kind of in this whole universe of the book all by yourself. Whereas co-writing with someone's like you kind of go under and you do the work and you come up and you kind of talk with one another and you do tweaks then you go under again for the next chapter, so um, just sort of a different a different process. But yeah, but you know, very very enjoyable. And you know, most of my books this is really kind of a thriller, so it, it paced it's paced very quickly. So sort of just stylistically for me that was a departure. Uh, many of my other books are kind of more like internal and slower. And so this one, you know, I like to think it's sort of 
it, it moves quickly, short chapters, lots of action, um, colorful characters. So, yeah. 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 That's awesome. Yeah. That's phenomenal. It, it turned out good. So, you know, Thank uh, you. you guys did amazing work and, uh, and hopefully it also informs people as well to, you know, pay more attention, right. And to understand potentially some of the things that are, you know, happening in and around us. And so I think, uh, especially over the past month, right. Like with current events, we're at a cycle now where people are more aware and more emotional and more involved, um, you know, whether they want to be or not. Uh, so on, on a world stage, you know, just understanding our position and, you know, sure. foreign policy and agenda. And so I'm curious to know too, you do, you do a few different things outside of just writing, but what's your, uh, long-term aims and goals or, you know, what, what do you, as far as the impact that you're looking, uh, to leave, on the world and, and the country, right? Like what's, what, what, what's your overarching, you know, uh, motivation or driving force? Um, I'm a writer, so I want to, I want to keep writing books that, uh, that hopefully matter and, uh, contribute to people's understanding of events, their consciousness. And, uh, you know, that's what fills me up and, and keeps me going. So, um, yeah, that's, you know, that's really, that's really my goal. It's, uh, it's both very simple and very ambitious at the same time. Yeah, that's awesome. And so do you, you're still, I haven't checked your, you know, your most recent work, but you're still doing journalism as well and, and writing and weighing in on foreign policy and all these other sorts of things. And Yeah, I do. I, so I write for a number of publications, you know, opinion pieces, essays, and then I also write fiction um, uh, as well. So, uh, you know, I, I have a range of, uh, you know, different, of different projects going at any given time. Yeah. Nice. Are you a multitasker or be able to do that? Uh, or are you like, I, I do, I generally will do one, you know, major writing project at a time, but I'll, sometimes I'll stop and do smaller things like bits of journalism will pop up and I'll have to take a day or two to work on something there. Um, but book projects, usually I mean, I'm only doing one at a time. It's tough for me to try to have two going simultaneously because they occupy so much of your mind. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. I found I'm terrible at multitasking. Like I'm not, you know, I can't, I can't do it. So I actually have a, like a, a renewed affinity, especially after leaving the military for, uh, for like deep work like that. Right. And there's even a book I read called deep work, which, you know, was talking about psychologically how to, to dive into, uh, you know, more challenging and more taxing mm -hmm. pursuits and how to set up your environment and, and handle those sorts of things. So that was interesting, but awesome. No, that sounds good, man. I've enjoyed our conversation. Cool. Now the pledge is all mine. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, and so just so everybody listening can find you as well, what, what's the best way to, to learn more about your work or to find you? Uh, obviously, you're on Amazon with your books and things, but your personal website and everything else, if you could share that. ElliotAckerman.com. I've got a website, and I'm on Twitter at ElliotAckerman and Instagram, Elliot.Ackerman. So um, I think I'm relatively easy to find. Yeah. Heck yeah. Well, excellent. Well, appreciate your time. Um, this has been an episode of Forward with me, Derek Herrera, amazing guest, Elliot Ackerman, who's a author, uh, former Marine, uh, former intelligence professional, uh, White House fellow, amazing titles. He's also a father and husband, and uh, it's been my pleasure to have him here on the show today. So thank you so much, Elliot. Uh, really enjoyed our chat today and uh, learning about your experience and some of the things we were able to talk about. Me too. Thanks, Terry. Thanks for having me.